the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. More than 2,000 local newspapers have ceased operating since the year 2005. That has left half of all counties in the United States without a local source of news coverage. Even where local newspapers survive, the ability of journalists to cover key issues such as public safety, education, and government suffers. What impact does that have on accountability and stopping abuse of power? That's the subject of this edition of Challenge 2.0. So we're very pleased to have as our guest today, Ron Judd, who is the executive editor of Cascadia Daily News. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Great to be here. Thanks. And Linnell Hott, uh, president of the League of Women Voters of Washington. Linnell, thank you for joining us, too. Thanks for the invitation. Well, Ron, I'd like to begin with a question to you. The trend has been for newspapers to close, not open. Uh, if print journalism was a hospital patient and you were an attending physician, how would you rank their health overall as an industry? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm glad you made that distinction because overall as an industry, I would say that um, you know, we're looking for ICU space. Um, honestly, our, our project here in our newspaper in Bellingham is actually doing really well. So we're probably an exception. And I can talk about the business from that perspective. But I've, I've spent a career in daily newspapers at Metro Dailies, like the Seattle Times for three decades, and they're doing okay, but they're struggling. And most um, metro-sized daily newspapers are really struggling or have been bought up by newspaper chains or some of them have unfortunately shut down. Um, we're seeing a little bit of a renaissance in community news, I feel like, um, mid-size and small-size cities. A lot of people are realizing that um, there is a real need there for local news. And I, I see kind of a revolution in local news and not hyper-local, but like cat up a tree, but sort of the role of the traditional small um, daily newspaper um, is coming back in some forms, not always print like it used to be, but that work is um, obviously still needed. And I see a lot of that happening, which is a really good sign, I think. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking more about your particular uh, publication here in a little bit. As you read up on this, if you're interested, uh, you see an online search reveals the terms uh, news desert or news black hole. And I would like both of you, from your perspectives, to say, what do those terms mean to you uh, as you understand it and as you've seen it exemplified in the industry? Linnell, maybe we'll start with you on that. Well, I think news desert, that that's kind of a rip off of food desert, which means that you can't find what you need around you and you can't find the information that you need. And local news may be, you know, what's happening with the weather in your area or what's happening with the roads in your area or the city council is going to meet tonight because they're redistricting a whole area and it used to be um, single family dwellings and now it's going to be a shopping center or, or whatever, but it's the stuff that's happening in your area. We're really good at following what's happening in New York and Washington, D.C., but that doesn't necessarily help you figure out how to get to work. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would call a, a local news desert. Ron, what would be your take? 
I would agree with that. And I think that um, a news desert is literally the lack of a news organization that's covering, you know, the public seat at the table and civic affairs, letting know what people uh, know what's going on, giving them a say in local government, making them aware of things that they need to know about to be informed citizens. And it's a critical thing for our democracy. And there are a lot of, especially small markets now that don't have a publication that's filling that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've tried to do in our market here, we have a newspaper that's owned by a trust fund and it's sort of the visage of a newspaper and a watchdog um, publication, but it doesn't act like one because mm-hmm. they haven't provided enough money for reporters to do that work. So I, you know, I use the term ghost newspaper for those kind of markets where there's an appearance of a watchdog, but not an actual watchdog. And to me, that's a almost equal concern because it's a, it's a separate problem, but in both cases, there's a vacuum of just basic information to be an informed citizen. Mm-hmm. Linnell, as uh, president of the League of Women Voters, uh, how exactly or why does this concern you and why should it uh, attract the attention of anyone who lives in Washington state or any of the areas that are impacted by this trend? I'm really going to double down on what Ron has said. Uh, The League has just finished a two-year study on local news, and it's well-researched, and uh, it'll probably be published in the next couple of months, but it'll be available on our website. That's not an ad. That's just telling you that we've got about 150 pages of of referenced, cited incidents of where this is a problem and how it's a problem. And we used to think, gee, I wonder if people are less engaged if there's no local newspaper. And now, you know, the Pew Foundation uh, research, there's been so much research done. It's not just something that is like out there. It's something that there's a direct relationship between the engagement of the public and what happens in our uh, towns and in our region and the uh, lack of a local newspaper. And I can ramble on about that if you want me to, but you might want to go back to Ron before I put my glasses on and take a look at some of these studies. There's that example, when somebody puts their glasses on, you know you're going to get into some serious stuff, but I want to come back to you on that. But Ron, what would you have to say to essentially uh, piggyback on Linnell's thoughts? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true. I and mean, we actually here at the Cascadia Daily News participated in that um, league project and talked about, you know, our owner talked about his long-term involvement with local news here. And the the real need that he saw to step in and fill a community problem by creating this new newspaper was, was this newspaper was created in direct response to that problem. And that I think makes us sort of unique because, um, most media companies are are formulated and and put into motion to make money, or unless they're not unless they're not profits, we've had other nonprofits have stepped into some of these vacuums. Mm-hmm. Um, but our our newspaper is a rare thing in that we're a private company um, trying to make a news organization that breaks even to fill a civic need for this information. And um, we've been in existence for less than a year and seen some progress there, so I know that it's possible. And I'm encouraged by that. But it, you know, it's a continual uphill fight because not a lot of communities have a person who will step forward and say, I'll fund this operation to solve this problem. You guys try to make it, um, you know, financially feasible in the long run. It's usually the other way around. And local newspapers don't pencil out if you're going to say, okay, we need to hire a staff of 12 people to do this job correctly. Mm -hmm. That's a significant chunk of money because news is very, very time intensive and labor intensive. And so there's not a lot of funds available for that. And that's the real challenge is how do we replace 
how does the industry replace the money that used to come from the traditional funding sources of classified advertising, which has kind of dried up, and retail advertising, which has kind of dried up, and how do you replace that revenue? That's for the industry. That's the critical question that needs to be solved. What I might do, and Lanelle, I do want to come back to you about the additional aspects of research, but Ron, this might be a really good time because you've led into that very nicely. Tell us the story about Cascadia Daily News and you know how that came to be. And I think you mentioned you've been a presence up in the Bellingham area in Whatcom County for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, but it was quite a change, quite a sea change, if you will, in terms of the direction you were headed. So uh, give us a little bit of the uh, story on that. Yeah, I'm a career newspaper person, and I worked at various newspapers in the Northwest in um, the last 33 years before last year was at the Seattle Times. And I've lived in Bellingham for 22 years, sort of, you know, early work from home person. And because I like the community and I went to college here in the 80s and I have a long affiliation with the town. Part of that role was as a um, journalism instructor at Western Washington University, and I would routinely take classes to City Hall um, county government meetings and have them practice writing stories. And, and I saw a lot of local news go by through those years that nobody covered. Mm -hmm. And I saw a direct impact on the community um, that was constantly kind of grading at me. And a year ago, last summer, David Syrie, who's our owner, who's a um, longtime local businessman, now um, prolific artist, um, approached me and said, we want to start a new daily news product in Bellingham that fills the need to um, fill in the gaps in, in public service journalism that's not being done here because we have a hedge fund on paper. Mm -hmm. And he challenged me to step away from what I do, was doing, which was a great job and take a risk and come and start this new organization, Cascadia Daily News, which is an online daily digital website product with a weekly print edition. And I hired a staff of 10 newsroom people who are all outside working right now outside my window and we went online in January and in print in March. And in the succeeding months have um, tried to build what is a new sort of um, new tooled version of a traditional local daily newspaper. It's locally owned. Most of us are local. We all live here. We don't have people working off site like most of the chains do. And so we're sort of an alternative to what most people see today as a chain news organization where you are um, working for a company that owns multiple products all over the country is not super um, smart about how to do coverage in the in your community. Um, I was hired to be that reasoned editorial voice and said, you are in charge of your news product. You're in charge of your newsroom. We're going to stay out of your business. Um, go out and make a newspaper that we'll all be proud of that solves this civic problem. What difference does it make as a journalist, as a newspaper man, to have the reins of ownership within a local community as opposed to someplace else? I think it really makes all the difference in two main ways. One is that I have the independence here to make editorial decisions on a daily basis, along with my teammates in the newsroom, about what we're going to cover, how we're going to cover it, what sources we're going to talk to. Um, we are not directed to write stories about anything. That happens in a lot of other environments that I'm aware of. In fact, a lot of our reporters and editors here have come from those environments mm -hmm. and escaped from them to come work for us, um, and they value that. Um, so there's that independence is a key thing, and the funding thing is another key element. Most of the chain newspapers, including our competition here in Bellingham, the Bellingham Herald seem to be stuck in this obsessive clickbait mode 
where they put up news that is of marginal value, but will draw clicks and they feel like that's their revenue model. We don't care about that. I mean, we track very carefully who reads our stories, when, how, and why, and where, and on what device, but that doesn't drive what we do. Um, we Our news decisions are based more on what does the community need? What role can we play here as a stand-in for the community at the table in public affairs? How do we bring the life of the community? It's not just news, not just hard news. We found the biggest response to many of our things are from covering like high school sports, which had fallen off the table here, big community thing. We cover basic things like we covered five graduations this spring, and a lot of these college students and high school students had never seen a local newspaper cover a graduation. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we feel validated by this coverage. And we write arts and entertainment content and other things that have been missing from this market for a long time. And people really feel like they have a common sort of tableau now to feel and see what's happening in their community. The thing that that really hits me is the the uh, connection between the the newspapers someone tracked 11 newspapers over 20 years and looking at 256 mayoral races they concluded that cities served by newspapers with relatively with relatively sharp declines in newsroom staffing had on average significantly reduced political competition in mayoral races so if if we don't have people who are willing to run because they see it as a normal kind of thing, then that's really a a loss for our democracy. We also notice that lower newspaper staffing is a direct correlation with lower voter turnout. Mm. People just aren't plugged in anymore. Shaker is a researcher who uh, did dead newspapers and citizens civic engagement. Um, That's his research. And he discovered that a decline that is not consistently replicated um, over the same time period in other major American cities that did not lose a newspaper, noticed that significant civic engagement decreased. So one of the things that that they noticed was neighborhood and community involvements, like the PTA or neighborhood watch groups, that just decreases. You have fewer volunteers. The uh, participation in groups like Lions Club and Rotary and so forth decreases. And finally, being an officer or serving on a committee in any group or organization just decreases. So this, you know, we're all in this together. We're not all just on Zoom. We are really living and breathing uh, next to each other. Well, a lot of most of uh, what you've talked about comes down to an old term, and that is watchdog function. And uh, what I'd like to do is ask each of you and Ron, I might turn to you. A couple of examples of where you've seen the watchdog function that you exercise as Cascadia Daily News uh, has made a difference, say, in the Bellingham community, just in having that local community, having an independent viewpoint of that and bringing it up to the attention of local residents and voters. Yeah, we we have seen that happen here already, which kind of surprised me, frankly, because we're so new. Um, we, we take a different approach to covering City Hall. Um, we tend to use City Hall and its functions not as news, um, ipso facto, but as a source for news. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we have one government reporter here who covers four or five or six or eight governments. And so by nature, he has to be smart about what those local governments are doing. So we try to cover stories that deserve a little bit more context, background, history, and we try to give um, voters, readers, taxpayers, 
full information to know how they feel about a subject. And what I saw here was a lot of public process over the years where the public was absent from the table at many of these meetings and the, that vacuum was quickly filled. It didn't remain a vacuum. It was filled by basically activists on various sides of an issue mm -hmm. who kind of controlled the public input and that the that the council, like on the city council is a perfect example. They heard from a lot of people who are activists, not from the average person who wasn't informed. We tried to fill that gap. And so one recent example is the city here is undertaking a huge um, wastewater treatment plant renewal project where they have to build a new treatment plant. Their treatment plant's on its last legs. They're buying parts for it off of eBay and literally. And, you know, we started poking into the costs and benefits of that program. And it was explained that we wanted a price tag. How much is this going to cost? And they said $250 million. Well, that means everybody's sewer rates are going to increase by fivefold really quickly. Mm -hmm. We kept asking questions about that. And it soon then became a half a half billion dollars and we asked more questions and the whole project itself now has a price tag of a billion dollars wow we reported that and i editorialized about it and i'm not claiming total credit for this but we put it out in front of the public and a couple of weeks later they they put a halt to the whole thing and said we need to rethink this mm -hmm. you know we're not here to influence that legislation we're here to give the public a seat at the table to be informed about what's going on. And that seems to have made a big difference already. I'm going to kind of second what Ron is saying about the cost of things. There was yet another study. You know, I love studies. I'm just crazy about that stuff. Um, higher government costs lead to higher borrowing costs. So if, if you're not watching the numbers, as Ron says, bad things happen. And here's what the averages are. It typically... Uh, a municipal bond taken out to pay for construction of hospital or school costs as much as 11 points more in the borrowing. So what that means is 600, think about your own town, $650,000 per bond is going to be more expensive in areas that don't have a newspaper, mm -hmm. local newspaper. I mean, it is that simple. And so that watchdog has a direct relationship. The, um, the idea that the league has people called observers and they were a big tag and it says observers and all they do, they're like Madame Lafarge, you know, they just watch what goes on in these public meetings. And then they talk about it and talk about, you know, should something be done or not. But that's very effective because I've had one of the things that that just citizens do is make it safe to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And and by that, I mean that I've had elected officials say you know, if you hadn't been in the audience, it would have been very difficult to turn this down. But because someone was standing up for the public interest, and that's typically, you know, Ron's in my bailiwick, uh, they were able to make decisions that were safer than, uh, than um, they might otherwise mm -hmm. have. And one of the things that I got to do in my, um, a few years ago was to be a guest editor on a an uh, editorial for our local newspaper. And I wrote the editorial about the sheriff's department uh, making so many stops and sort of using that, I think I used it, the term fundraiser or bake sale for the sheriff's department. Maybe I didn't, but the whole idea was that, that they were using this to fund the department and surely there were better things that they could be doing. And I got an, a letter from the sheriff I put this in the newspaper editorial. They mm -hmm. all agreed to it. I got a letter from the sheriff, two page, single space, 
and it started out, I mean, this is in my mind. People asked me if I was angry about your editorial. I was not angry. I was furious. And the sheriff went on. This is a man I know, mm -hmm. sort of. Uh, and he went on to explain about how outraged he was. And I began, the more I thought of it, the more I worried about it. You know, like, is he going to plant something in my yard and arrest me for it? I mean, I really got paranoid about it. I was really frightened. And I realized I didn't write this by myself. I wrote this with a newspaper corporation. Those people, those newspaper people have lawyers. They have people who can help me figure out what do I do now? So all of a sudden, instead of the, the power relationship being like this, it was like this because I was with the newspaper. And so I think that is so important so that we have the safety of free speech mm -hmm. uh, in our our media. So uh, that's that's my little personal story about I was terrified, but I got over it because I had the newspaper behind me. Well, you've both given some uh, excellent examples there. And of course, you're both in communities now where thanks to your work and thanks to the work of others, there is that kind of representation. For those communities that lack that, what would you recommend that people in those communities, such communities, uh, do? What can they do to uh, begin to regain that sort of accountability and that sort of advocacy uh, and the watchdog function? I think um, Linnell makes a really good point about um, scale. Um, it's tough to um, enact the sort of um, changes that you're trying to get across or get public information if you're a citizen journalist working by yourself, because ultimately a lot of agencies will ignore you to the point where your only recourse is to file a lawsuit. You know, if that happens to us, we're, we're willing to do that. If I'm working by myself in my house, that's not a realistic option. So the question then becomes, how do you get that sort of gravitas? And I think the answer is, is that people have to really work together and make a coordinated effort. I mean, we've seen a lot of um, citizen journalism sites in, in our community. There have been a couple and they've done amazing work over the years just trying to fulfill that role. There's a point where they tend to get, you know, they tend to draw a lot of activists who have a special interest in one thing and really want to want to write about that. Um, what they usually lack is the kind of trained professionals who can make a complicated issue accessible to the general public mm -hmm. in a way that's accessible to everybody without a lot of slang and terminology and, you know, 8,000 word pieces about, about, you know, 5G or whatever, um, just sort of a generalized approach. And, you know, I, I say, God bless them. I support everything that they do. I mean, but it's not enough usually by itself. I think that nonprofits like that and citizen journalism sites need to really work together mm -hmm. and and try to um, cover bases. And it's really helpful also if there's a lot of um, resources that can be made available in your community. You have a college or a university or a community college that has a journalism program. Work with those people to put reporters on the street. I mean, these are kind of extreme measures, right? When you don't have company stepping up or a trust fund that have, you know, we've seen a few models of those around the country in bigger newspapers, like in Philadelphia, there's an interesting one where a TV station and the local newspaper are owned by a trust fund and it's a nonprofit situation. I think there's a lot of potential for those kind of things yet to explore. We have a nonprofit that's formed here that's done some good work. And um, I don't think it's the answer to this bigger problem of, of especially watchdog role and public accountability 
because that kind of reporting skill is not something that you normally get just from bringing in volunteers. Um, but it's way better than having nothing. Uh, I would suggest that you, now that we have Zoom, simply observe. I think some of these meetings, if you begin to, to watch them over time, they really tell a story that is almost as interesting, if not more interesting, than some of the games that we play on our screens. Especially now that we have Zoom, we can just sort of tune into these things and watch them. I have a friend who watches the museum board and writes letters and so forth. And, and it's real interesting, you know, what happens when she's there and when she's not there. The other thing that I recommend is that you meet your elected officials before you have a beef with them. So mm -hmm. whether it's go to a campaign party or go to a celebration or whatever it is, you know, the league is nonpartisan. That means that we don't oppose or support any candidate, but certainly every citizen should think about like, who represents me? Mm -hmm. Who's taking my side in this? Sometimes the, you will learn that it is complicated and it is absolutely true. But any country that can understand the NFL rules can understand <laughs> a government budget. I mean, let's just be serious here. What is it that we're willing to devote some time to? Um, pick something that you're interested in, stay curious. And, um, and I really think that, that an individual can make, I've seen individuals make huge differences, but supporting the community information at large is um, really crucial. And I wanna thank you for the opportunity for letting me rant like this. <laughs> well, I would thank both of you for the good work you're doing, the chance for people in our viewing audience, our uh, listening audience in terms of our podcast uh, to be able to expand their understanding of the importance of this. And I wish you both much success, uh, Ron, with Cascadia and uh, Linnell also with League of Women Voters. And just my thanks to both of you and to all of you watching. Uh, we thank you for joining us and hope you'll return for the next episode of Challenge 2.0. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking. And the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.